They say the key to a good sermon introduction is to quickly gain the interest of your audience and demonstrate, demonstrate why their attention to the subject at hand is worth the effort. So this morning, we're going to be talking about sex and marital intimacy. We've established your interest. Some of you are perhaps very curious about what God has to say on the matter, and some of you are perhaps exhausted by the subject and its constant presence in the culture, and maybe yet others this morning are nervous or even frightened by the topic because of difficult past or present experiences, and some of you are parents and worried about your children, and to you I say, my children are going to sit through this message too, so I intend to be discreet. But to everyone else, our passage speaks with clarity and helpful wisdom, And since this text has not been infrequently abused to enable wickedness, I think we should pay very close attention so that we don't repeat such errors. So there's your introduction. I would invite you, now that you've had a chance to settle in, to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 7. And as is our custom, as you are able, would you stand to honor the reading of God's Word? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, (coughs) reads this. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However... Each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to this passage this morning, we are thankful for you and for all that you have done in your works in this world and your works in our lives and the gifts that you have given and the truth that you have revealed. And as those things come together, Lord, around this topic that is so central in so many areas of our culture and our world, and yet is often so mysterious or confusing, uh, something that is meant to be so blessed and yet is often wrapped with so much pain. We pray that you would give us a new appreciation for your wisdom, that we might respect and enjoy and be able to honor you. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we jump into 1 Corinthians 7, as you recall, we're jumping back into Paul dealing with specific issues in the church in Corinth. He had opened up addressing a number of general issues, uh, things that were on his heart and mind. But he's now gotten to that part where he's going through and kind of item by item dealing with specific issues that have come up that need to be addressed. And he does that in this uh, pattern that he's established of directly, straightforwardly, practically addressing an issue and then laying out undergirding principles, timeless principles that help us to understand the theology behind those lessons. We saw that in chapter 5 as Paul discussed an incestuous relationship in the church and the principle there was a little leaven leavens the whole lump so you need to deal with this problem or it's going to spread. At the beginning of chapter 6 we saw this in lawsuits against believers 
And you recall the lesson there was that the gospel means that we are not left unrighteous in the unrighteousness of our past, but we have been washed, sanctified, and justified, and therefore we need to treat each other differently. And then in verses 12 to 18, we saw him dealing with the issues of immorality and prostitution. And he gave us that principle that our bodies must glorify God because he has purchased them and they are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so our passage this morning is an extension of that last discussion about the proper use of our bodies, particularly when it comes to sexual purity. And if we are to honor God by avoiding immoral sexuality, then you can guess which end of the pendulum swing Paul's going to address uh, this morning, correct? If unchecked lust is bad, then celibacy must be best, right? That's going to be the extreme that we're going to be addressing in our text this morning. And Paul's response is very clear. And if you just kind of want to understand the main concept from the beginning, Paul's point is simple. The gift of marriage includes the gift of marital intimacy, And it is neither spiritually wise nor spiritually safe to deprive a spouse of that gift. That's the point he's trying to make. And I want to begin there with him laying out the case for why this issue is so important, why their misunderstanding of it is so important, and why it needs to be addressed so seriously. And so if you have your notes this morning, you can look at your outline. And our first point is this. Marital intimacy is often misunderstood. Marital intimacy is often misunderstood. Look with me at verse 1, which says this. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul begins here a pattern that he's going to carry through the rest of the book of now concerning phrases. He's going to say, okay, now that other thing you mentioned, now that other thing you mentioned. And there's going to be five more. He's got this issue he's bringing up here. Later in chapter 7, he's going to say, now concerning virgins. And chapter 8, now concerning meat sacrifice to idols. And chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. Chapter 16, now concerning offerings for the saints. And in chapter 16 again, now concerning a visit from Apollo. So you can see they've been communicating with him about all kinds of different issues. And he's just trying to systematically work through them. And the issue he's dealing with at the moment is the issue regarding now concerning your desire to somehow achieve spiritual superiority by turning your marriages into an exercise in celibacy. And this first little snippet here that Paul is quoting from their letter about is it's a revelation that marital intimacy is as confusing in biblical times as I think it is today. Uh, That is, I believe, what is happening there in verse 1 is Paul is giving them a little quote from what they had wrote to him. And the issue, as I mentioned, that the Corinthians are addressing here is that in contrast to some of the Corinthians who believed the gospel was cover for the indulgence of the flesh and all kinds of immorality, others believed that the best way to be spiritually minded was to simply be spiritually only, even in marriage. And that was not an uncommon philosophy at this time. The idea that the spirit or the spiritual is good, the body, the fleshly is bad, and some had taken that and mixed it with teachings on purity, and they'd come up with this slogan, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And that word touch here is a word that is kind of like uh, the word kindle uh, mixed together with uh, intimacy. those, Those are kind of the connotations of that word. It was a word that was very easily used as a euphemism for intimacy. And so that's the question then is, is that the best solution to all this immorality? Is that the best solution to stemming just this wave 
of sin that is washing the culture in, first, in, in, in Corinth that we read about in 1 Corinthians. Just get rid of the whole category of human, excuse me, human sexual experience entirely. And you can kind of understand the overreaction. There are times if you've ever gone to like a, just an overwhelmingly crazy big city, right, and it's just the, the smog and the noise and the honking of the horns and the traffic and every, the, everything is just crazy and chaotic. And there are times you're like, that's it, honey, we are moving to a deserted island. Right? I'm just done. I'm, I'm going as far away from this as we possibly can. And, and that's what we're seeing here going on in the church of Corinth. Is, is just saying, I don't want this to be a part of my life, a good solution to living in a culture awash with temptation and abuse? Is that the right response? Is that the right way to course correct? Well, it depends on why God gave us this aspect of human experience in the first place. Whether or not it is wise or safe or proper to do away with it. And we don't have time this morning to get into a full theology of marital intimacy, but I do think it's very helpful to look briefly at two passages. And the first is in the beginning of your Bible, and the second is the passage where Paul quotes that passage that's in the beginning of your Bible. When God created mankind, he did so with a unique purpose in mind. In Genesis 1, 26 to 27, God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So that's the big picture. That's what happened. But remember the drama of how God caused that to play out on the ground. Adam is formed from the dirt of the ground, and then he's placed there in the Garden of Eden and tasked with naming all the creatures as God is forming them and bringing them to him in chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. And in this process, God allows Adam to come to the realization that he is both alone and incomplete with no one to suitably join him as a helper in the mission of mankind. And so it is then that God causes Adam to sleep and does a little thoracic rib resection. From this piece of Adam, God forms the other half of mankind, a woman. And he brings her to Adam. And Adam is overjoyed. God's image is now fully displayed in this coming together of man and woman, male and female. And Adam can't stop gushing. Genesis 2, 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God desires to picture himself within his creation in a being that can demonstrate his essential self-communion and can come together in a diversity of gifting and roles, but a unity of purpose and essence to enjoy life and create life. And so God creates a marriage. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is what marital, marital intimacy is all about, which is why it is the very next verse that says this, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marital intimacy is the symbol of marriage itself, and marriage, for its part, is a symbol of divine oneness. And so intimacy is made to be a physical expression of a divine reality. But wait, there's more. 
Remember I told you that this verse was quoted by Paul. And you know the passage. In Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33, we have that classic New Testament discussion of the roles of men and women in marriage. And in this passage, Paul urgently and poetically calls women to give themselves in full submission to their husbands and for husbands to give themselves in full sacrifice to their wives. Why? Because like in the garden, there is something very important being illustrated in marriage. And not just in marriage, but in marital intimacy. Look at Ephesians 5:31 to 32, where it says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What is that reason? Verse 32, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Marital intimacy is the symbol of marriage itself, and marriage is a symbol of the gospel. And so intimacy is a physical expression of not one but two divine realities, the life-giving relational oneness of the Trinity and the redemptive glorifying oneness of the gospel. Or it's a clever evolutionary adaptation for the ongoing propagation of the species. One of the two. One of those makes a better Hallmark movie, right? God's picture of intimacy is beautiful. His purposes for it are beautiful. So why then is something so clearly laid out as this and so completely good a source of so much confusion in biblical times and today? Well, I think there's maybe three main reasons that that come to the top of mind when we, we try to understand why is this issue so difficult in so many circumstances. And the first reason is due to external forces, because Satan has figured out what you can't destroy, deface. What you can't destroy, deface. Satan is committed to the defacing of sex and marriage both. They are hated symbols of two realities that he is powerless to overcome, God and the gospel. The more we wallow in a world in rebellion against God and allow it to shape our understanding of either marriage or sex, the more we find our notions are distorted into selfish, shameful, cheap, or deviant substitutes. If the whole topic of marital intimacy seems awkward or icky or embarrassing or the like, the solution is not to give ourselves over to every lust of the flesh, like a Corinthians chapter 5 and 6 person, or to recoil away from it and say, get thee to a nunnery, like the Corinthians chapter 7 folks. It's to go back to the revelation of God and to seek to know Him more and to look at the Gospel and to seek to know it more and to be so in love with these holy, good, and glorious truths that they in turn dominate our thinking about our holy, good, and glorious sexuality as we submit it in obedience to the sacred symbol of marital intimacy. So that's the first reason we get confused. Satan is attacking. I don't know that you need to spend much time proving that point. It's all around us. Secondly, we have internal challenges. God's gifts without God's guidelines are intoxicating. God's gifts without God's guidelines are intoxicating. Our sexuality is accompanied by powerful desires and longings that are some of the deepest and most central to who we are. As Christians, it's true, we must emphatically deny that our sexuality is our identity. That is not true. 
But we must also be willing to affirm that our sexuality was designed to be a symbol of our identity. And that is powerful. That is powerful. For fallen creatures like us, knowledge is often overpowered by appetite. Have you ever noticed that? You do stuff because you really want to, even when you know it's a bad idea. And when it comes to this area of our lives, the really want to part can be very strong. God's gifts without God's guidelines are intoxicating. And third, symbols shine a spotlight on problems. Symbols shine a spotlight on problems. Are you having a really rough year personally? Your birthday is going to hit a little different, isn't it? Your extended family going through some conflict? Wait until you gather for Thanksgiving. Your nation dealing with divisions and, and factions? Wait until the 4th of July rolls around. Right, symbols have a way of shining a spotlight on and accentuating problems. Is your marriage suffering from poor communication, sinful attitudes, selfishness, pride, anger, manipulation, laziness, worldliness? Often before you even connect the dots in your mind on that issue that's going on, you will experience its effects in the marriage bed. Past and present immorality will often most painfully manifest in your marital intimacy. Abuses and sufferings of the past that are difficulties in regular relationships can become devastations in the realm of sexual union. Symbols shine a spotlight on where there is brokenness, hurt, and sin. And all this explains how you can have a church in which some people somehow thought it was okay to frequent prostitutes and other people thought that sex should be avoided altogether. So how is Paul, having addressed the former excess, now going to help the Corinthians fix their equally bad theology at the other extreme? With some straight common sense and biblical principles. That's how, that's how Paul does it. So look at verses 2 to 6 with me as we see marital intimacy is a safeguard and an expectation. It's a safeguard and an expectation. In these verses, Paul gives us three parallel teachings that all express mutuality in marriage. What a husband needs to know concerning his wife and what a wife needs to know concerning her husband. Interestingly enough, each needs to know the exact same things. Paul gives us these three teachings in the form of two commands and then another one of his famous overarching principles. And so look with me at that first command in verse 2. Mutual having encloses a marriage. Mutual having encloses a marriage. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Paul begins here with that but as a contrast, as a way of saying, that's not right. Let me tell you how this actually works. In contrast to that idea that it's good for a man not to touch a woman, to have nothing to do with intimacy, you need to take a few things into account that you're not factoring in. And one of them actually is immoralities. Right? The temptation might have been, because there's so much immorality in the world, I'm going to have nothing to do with marital intimacy. And Paul's like, no, because there's so much immorality out there, you need to be invested in marital intimacy. It's an unusual plural of immorality here. He says immoralities. 
It could be a reference back to the repeated prostitution he addressed in the previous passage or simply a way of describing that many kinds of sexual sin are lurking all around. And I think that is likely to be his main uh, point here. Paul is giving some really practical common sense advice here. As sexual creatures in a world awash in sexual temptations and perversions, did you really think Paul is saying that it was a good idea to make celibacy a virtue in marriage? No. Of course not. Instead, there must be the protected and experienced reality of mutual having. Just like the old vows say, a husband is to have and to hold his wife, and the wife is to have and to hold her husband. And notice that this encloses and defines rather than eliminates marital intimacy. This sets those guidelines around a good thing to preserve the good thing. And also notice, this is an arrangement for two people only. Paul's very emphatic. Each man, his wife, each woman, her husband, two at a time, just like getting on the ark. If you are married, in substance, Paul is saying, be married in symbol. This is not only for your positive good, but it is for your protection. And notice the mutuality on display here. No gender is singled out for susceptibility to immoralities. Men are subject to immoralities. Women are subject to immoralities. No gender is given exclusive having rights. Men are to have their husbands, and women are to, excuse me, men are to have their wives. I'm going to do this again this morning, so just give me grace. Uh, Wives are to have their husbands. It's mutual. And as we go through this, for some of us this morning, you're just thinking, yeah, great, amen and amen, I'm good to go. But for others, perhaps these verses already have your stomach in knots. For a variety of reasons, these principles can be really scary. And you've perhaps seen their abuse in wicked and painful ways. And if that's you this morning, I ask merely that you ask the Lord to give you the the grace to understand the points that Paul is and isn't making. And we'll have some asterisks and disclaimers a little later. But perhaps this morning can be part of an awakening of hope and trust in God's good design, even if you've seen that design trampled on before. And speaking of verses that have been taken improperly, the next two are prime examples. Look at verse 3. Mutual giving is expected in marriage. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. In this second command here, Paul is even more direct. The language of mutual having changes to the language of of mutual fulfilling. And translations are all over the map when it comes to trying to render this phrase, fulfill his duty. And perhaps because it comes across quite bluntly in the Greek, literally it's repay your obligation or repay your debt. Clearly in this context, Paul is speaking of marital intimacy, but he's doing so in the language of expectation and obligation. Marriage comes with certain expectations. Has anybody noticed this? One of those expectations is the giving of one's intimacy to the other. 
That's what Paul is saying. That is an expectation in marriage. Husband, you don't get to decide that an exclusively spiritual marriage is okay. Because you have an obligation, a debt of self-giving to your wife by virtue of your marriage. The same is true for the wife. Each is to mutually recognize a responsibility to the other that the reality of the marriage is to be accompanied by the reality of its precious symbol. I want you to notice, though, and this is important, what Paul is teaching here is that they are to be mutual debt fulfillers and not mutual debt collectors. All right, there is a really big difference here, which we'll discuss under Paul's third teaching here. They are debt fulfillers, not debt collectors. And getting those mixed up is one of the reasons there can be so much heartache that comes out of a passage like this instead of so much blessing. Look with me at Paul's third point here in verse 4. Mutual submitting is essential in marriage. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And this is that big principle. We had the two commands. Now Paul's giving us our big principle behind the instruction. Marriage involves surrendering some aspects of your individual bodily autonomy. I know that is the great virtue of our age, complete and total bodily autonomy. And Paul says, you surrender aspects of that in marriage. It is a simple truth that in marriage we give of ourselves to the other. It's not just a poetic gesture. Boundaries of authority and self-determination actually change. You have new responsibilities. You have new obligations. You have new debts. Sometimes literally. I pause here to look at some of you young men and women in the room who are approaching the season where you will make the choice of who you will give yourself to. And I want to pause here to say, be very, very, very careful who you young men and women choose to grant such a sacred and powerful relationship to. Because these verses are true. And these realities can be the source of tremendous blessing or great heartache. And that is where I want to pause to add some of those disclaimers I promised earlier. As we've been going through the mutuality of these three teachings, I hope you've noticed the giving nature of all these doctrines of marital intimacy. They're all about giving. Any husband or any wife who uses these verses to demand intimacy is abusing the text. And more than that, they are abusing those most sacred of all things, God and the gospel. When intimacy is demanded selfishly, that's not only a sin, that's blasphemy. Because it's not only a lie against God's instruction about marriage, but it is also a lie about God and the gospel, which are both being sinfully depicted in that sinful marital intimacy. And so it becomes enacted blasphemy. When intimacy is weaponized, when it is used as a bargaining chip or for manipulation, when it is conducted for the gratification of self rather than the blessing of the other, when it is neglected as unimportant or an inconvenience, these are all distortions of God and the gospel in our marriages. 
We must be givers and not takers, or we are not describing accurately the God who gave, Christ who gave, and how we respond to Christ as the church. It's all about giving, or it's not correct. I remind us, how did Jesus use his great authority over the church? By humbling himself to die for her and coming rather to serve than to be served. How does the church use her newfound freedom? To submit herself to Christ who is her head. Make your marriage look like that. Make your marriage bed look like that. That's the point. Marital intimacy is a safeguard. It's an expectation. And it's a necessary implication of how authority works in marriage. So given all of that, what do you think Paul's application will be? No surprises here. Be intimate. Be intimate. Verses 5 and 6. So be intimate. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The last time we saw this word for deprive was all the way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 to 8, when Paul was instructing the believers to stop defrauding and stealing from one another. This is a strong word. In light of the previous doctrine, to adopt the motto, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, Paul says is marital theft. It's marital theft. In fact, Paul can only think of, can you see here, one good reason One good reason not to be regularly enjoying marital intimacy. And it happens to be the same good reason why you might stop eating and drinking for a while. To fast for the sake of prayer. That's the only reason he can think of. To voluntarily withhold yourself from a spouse. And notice that even here it is mutual. One spouse can't say, I've decided to reserve this year for prayer. Pray without ceasing. They must together in agreement say there is something before us as a married couple so important that let us, by mutual agreement for a time, fast from these good gifts so that we can be devoted to seeking God's will. That's it. And notice this prayer exception is given as an optional prayer exception and not even as a necessity. Paul goes out of his way even to clarify in verse 6, but this I say by way of concession, not of command. He's like, I'm not telling you you have to fast for marital intimacy to pray. I'm just saying I'd understand it if you did, but don't do it too long. Do you see how hard he's working to say that this is to be a regular part of the Christian life? He's re-emphasizing that leaving the marriage bed empty for long can lead only to trouble because it gives our enemy an opening. Notice he says, so that Satan will not tempt you. And it gives our flesh an opportunity because of your lack of self-control. A word about that lack of self-control phrase. Paul, as I said, is being very practical and very honest here. Regular intimacy is a form of marital protection. However, one thing Paul is not doing here is giving an excuse for those who are enslaved to their wicked lusts. And that is sometimes how this has been twisted. A man or a woman who engages in immorality of any kind can never use, never use the actions of a spouse as an excuse. 
it may have been a factor in their temptation. That is plain. But it is never, ever an excuse. We are responsible for our obedience to the Lord. And he has always given us all we need through his word and his Holy Spirit for us to fulfill that obligation to obey. There is no excuse in blaming a spouse for our sin. Similarly, this does not give a man or a woman permission to abuse these verses to try to satisfy an idolatrous and enslaving lust problem via their spouse. That is also not okay. Sexual lust by its very nature is an insatiable appetite that consumes life where it should give life, takes what it is not allowed to have, and destroys what it should treasure. There is no safeguard against lust. If you have an idolatrous appetite for immorality, you have to put that to death, not hold your spouse somehow responsible to satisfy a sinful worship. That is so critical. Marital privileges do not solve sin problems. Anybody kind of notice, like you had this idea that, well, when I get married... I'm just going to all of a sudden become so mature. Right? And did you ever notice that like you showed up at your honeymoon just as sinful as you were before? Marital privileges do not solve sin problems. Marital intimacy does, however, work to perpetuate the enjoyment and safety of God's good gift in His way. A few questions that may come up as you're working through a passage like this, uh, how often is often enough to count as not depriving? Paul doesn't say that here, and he doesn't say it anywhere else, which means we have no idea what that means for you. That's something you and your spouse alone before God can determine. So how do you make that kind of a determination? With lots of open, honest, gentle communication. This can be one of those areas where a failure to communicate lovingly and clearly can lead to hurt expectations, deep wounds that can literally tear marriages apart. How many of you have ever watched a movie where a conversation that should have happened in the first 60 seconds of the movie didn't happen? And so now there's like an hour and a half of agony. How many of our marriages have had decades of agony for want of just a few honest, heartfelt, loving conversations? Work through this together uh, with your spouse. Or maybe you're wondering, okay, I get the principle, but what if, what if marital intimacy has just lost all of its sparkle? Well... Maybe your marital intimacy needs more theology and gospel in it. And, and I mean that seriously. Maybe one of the reasons your, your marital intimacy has lost its sparkle is because you've forgotten what it's picturing. You've forgotten what you're supposed to be celebrating and enjoying in that exchange. And, and perhaps you would find that that sparkle returns when your affection for God and for his good gospel are increasing. Or perhaps... You're in a different season of life than you were in your 20s. And Hollywood is holding an expectation over your head that's kind of ridiculous. 
there, there is no one expectation for the way things are supposed to be for your whole life and because of health and because of age and because of all kinds of factors, busyness. You cannot have one expectation of what everything is supposed to be all the time. Allow for the seasons of life and make sure that you are filling each season with the fullness of its meaning and its purpose rather than trying to retain some standard or some bar that you've seen put forward by a world that clearly has no idea what it's talking about when it's talking about intimacy. One thing is for sure. You don't need a hundred amazing tips from some website or checkout line magazine. Don't try to use the world's way to create the kind of joy and satisfaction that is meant to come from God. And as Christians, we should celebrate and model that. We're not trying to impress Hollywood. We're trying to love our spouse and give ourselves to him or to her in all sincerity, no matter what our hormone or energy levels happen to be at the moment, because it's all about God and it's all about his gospel on display in this marriage that is made up of these two people that he put together and has in this season of life for his purposes, and we are excited about that. Another question that might come up is, well, what if intimacy is impossible at the moment or permanently in our marriage? If it is a providence of God outside of your control, then accept that from his hand. Speak of any challenges openly and honestly. Let the gospel saturate every part of your relationship and prove that the symbol of marriage is important, but it's not necessary to enjoy and praise God for the substance of marriage. When you have the ability to enjoy the symbol, celebrate it. When you don't, make sure that the substance is as true as the symbol ought to be. And perhaps, difficultly, what if this whole topic is painful and confusing and tangled up in years of bad communication, hurt feelings and unmet expectations, and I don't know what to think or to do, and I feel so overwhelmed and so embarrassed, what do I do now? If, if you are in this kind of a situation, please, I beg you, seek counsel. Seek counsel. Come talk to a pastor. Call our bridge ministry. Reach out to your life group leaders. Call an older couple in our church who have a marriage that looks like you want your marriage to look like. But you can't talk about sex around a church. Nonsense. Where have you been the last month? We're talking about it every week lately. (laughs) We talk about it all the time in the church because God talks about it all the time. We're not vulgar. We're not crass. Because God's descriptions are not vulgar and crass. But this is an important part of life. And it's one that if we need to talk, we need to talk. Behind every happy marriage that you see, Behind every healthy pattern of marital intimacy is a story of hard work and common struggles and communication breakthroughs and lots and lots and lots of the grace of God. And I think it's so easy, especially in this area, to have the assumption that everybody else figured this out so easily and I'm the only one who's hurting. And that's just not true. Something this good is going to become a battleground for any fallen creature. And so I encourage you, take advantage 
of the common human condition to find sympathetic, practical, biblical help in making our marriages what God wants them to be. What you will often find is that what you are discovering as a pain point, as a problem, as a frustration in in this area of life and intimacy is connected to things woven throughout your marriage or throughout your heart. And starting here and working your way back, you may find such relief, such repentance, such healing, and wonder, why did I wait so long to address this issue? Last question this morning might be simply this. What if I have no interest in marriage or marital intimacy at all? And to you, Paul would say, awesome. Stay single. And that leads us to our last point. Married or single, enjoy your gift. Married or single, enjoy your gift. Look at verse 7. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Paul loved being single. He really did. Not in like the fake I'm covering because I'm jealous, but he actually loved being single. And he'll sing the praises of singleness yet again a little later in this book. Singleness opened up doors of opportunity They enabled levels of riskiness in the gospel that Paul said just wouldn't have been an option if I was married. But Paul recognizes that his singleness, just like marriage, is a gift. And whatever gift you get, enjoy it. Are you single today and you think being single is best and you think married people are weird? Great. Just don't rain on the married parade. Because God loves marriage. And are you married this morning? And you think that marriage is best and single people are weird and missing out. Great. Just don't rain on the single parade. God loves singleness. Or he wouldn't give it as a gift to people. Now, the opposite is also true. Are you married because you feel guilty otherwise? That's a terrible reason to get married. If you are getting married because you feel pressured and like, boy, that sounds miserable, but, you know, take one for the team. Stop. Stop. Do not make a covenant before God about a relationship for which you have no desire Are you, on the other hand, single because you're unwilling to take the steps to pursue marriage? And you're just like, oh, it's so hard to be single. But it's, you know, hard to not be lazy, too. Move. Be mature. Grow up. Assume adult responsibilities. Be the kind of person that God can bring another wonderful person to meet without cursing them. But if you are are married and happy, that's your gift. If you're single and you're happy, that's your gift. Are you currently single and you're terrified that God has given you the gift of singleness? Don't worry. He hasn't. How do I know he hasn't? Because it's a gift. 
You ever had somebody who, in all sincerity, gave you a, just the most heartfelt gift ever, and you hated it? <laughs> like, it was maybe something you would never wear, even if it did fit, and it doesn't. <laughs> right? God's not a gift guesser. He made you. He knows your heart and your desires better than you do. And if he says, I give gifts of marriage and I give gifts of singleness, you can be assured without fail he doesn't put the wrong package under your Christmas tree. If you really, really, really want to have a marriage someday, congratulations. You have the gift of marriage. Be content where you're at until it's Christmas, which will be in God's timing, not yours. Are you really, really, really happy being single and you're terrified at the idea of getting married someday? Well, if that terror is because you've believed a lie about marriage, repent. If your excitement is because there's so many things you want to do for God as a single person, then do them and enjoy it. God's gifts are wonderful and we want to celebrate all of them. And just because it is so easy to abuse them, does not mean we reject them, nor does it mean that we can use them flippantly, but all of God's good gifts are to be appreciated, they are to be enjoyed, and they are to be used the way that he designed. And speaking of gifts, that brings us to our time around the Lord's table this morning. And so I would encourage you to take your elements and prepare them. Communion is another symbol, a uniquely physical and tangible symbol of the unity and communion that we have with God. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel and a beautiful picture of love. When God created us in his image, it wasn't just an unfortunate condescension that he made us physical. That, that was for a reason. And, and in us, spiritual truths are physically lived out. And that was true when the Father sent his Son. Jesus didn't spiritually die for us. He physically died for us. Right? He didn't just mystically, mystically make atonement. He actually made atonement. He didn't metaphorically bear the wrath of God. He actually took the wrath of God. And so we remember this morning what love looked like in action when it was lived out through his son. And it is in that gift that we find our example and our model for what all of our Christian fellowship should look like generally and for what our marriages should look like particularly and for what marital intimacy is depicting particularly. And so as we get ready to take this cup and this bread, I'd invite us, especially as we sing this closing song in just a minute, contemplating the love of the Father and how deep it is for us to look through our lives. If you're married through those areas of your life that are unique to your marriage, and if you're here today and you're a Christian, look through your life and ask, is my life a symbol of those truths that we celebrate today? And if not, Perhaps it's time to spend some more time remembering what he has done for us.
So let me pray for us, and then we will take together. Father, this morning, uh, we are once again thankful for what you have revealed to us. We thank you that you've given to us the good gift of marriage, that your desire for this world to be full of fruitfulness, you have chosen to do through such a wonderful relationship as marriage, and that in that you have created such a beautiful symbol to depict in such a powerful way who you are, how the gospel works. And Lord, we, we are saddened to see how that is so quickly and so often trampled and distorted by a world at war with you and by our own flesh. And so this morning, we, we pray that you would help us to reorient our lives, to reorient our marriages by a sincere reflection on your love for us in Christ. And that that would be the center of our attention to guide us back until our lives are in conformity to truth. And we know that there will be found our great joy. And so this we pray in the name of our Savior who gave himself for us. Amen. Let's take together.